0: Resilience, crisis competence, and defiance are terms used in this week's articles on Lessons from LGBTQ Elders, a population that has lived through the AIDS crisis, endured homophobia, and family estrangement for some. The offerings from Next Avenue include Lessons on Resilience from LGBTQ Elders by John Manuel Andriot, published January 6, 2021. Cindy Merman and Helen McDermott Endure in Love Together by Bruce Johansson, published December 22, 2020, and Christina DeCosta Provides a Means for LGBTQ Elders to Connect by Grace Birkenstell, published November 2020. Beginning with lessons on resilience from LGBTQ elders. Enduring hardships makes this population masters of perseverance. LGBTQ elders know a lot about resilience. They've simply had to in order to survive and certainly to live long enough to become elders. Their wisdom offers lessons for anyone who wants to grow older with the strength of resilience or bolster this skill while the pandemic continues to challenge our lives. Researchers studying LGBTQ elders find that... The unfortunate experience of resisting homophobia and or transphobia provides the emotional and psychological tools needed to resist ageism. Karen I. Fredrickson Goldson uses the word resist to describe the way LGBTQ older adults push back against stigma. She's a professor of social work at the University of Washington and the principal investigator of the largest ongoing study of LGBTQ elders. Not everyone, but many, resisted the kind of stigma and the obstacles that they faced and tried to create new pathways, she said. Mark Brennan Ng, a senior research scientist at the Brookdale Center for Healthy Aging at Hunter College in New York City, said this crisis competence can make LGBTQ older adults better positioned to cope with the challenges of aging. Another tool for coping is what Brian DeVries, professor emeritus of gerontology at San Francisco State University, calls perspective taking. He said, LGBTQ people are used to being vigilant about others' responses to them, which leads to empathy and the need and freedom for LGBTQ elders to age on a path of our own creation. That path begins with coming out. New York City psychologist Harold Kooten, 84, explores in his book Golden Men, the Power of Gay Midlife, the connection between the dynamics of coming out and the development of skills that can be used to age successfully. Kooten writes that aging with resilience, like the coming out experience, is about moving beyond what others want to living the life you want, from isolation to belonging to a community and developing a sense of hope for a positive future with a feeling of pride. An attitude of defiance has served Robert Mary Clement well throughout his 95 years, An ordained priest since 1948 in the American Catholic Church, Clement founded the Church of the Beloved Disciple in 1970, New York City's first church specifically for LGBTQ people. Clement celebrated the first same-sex holy union at the church that July, shortly after the first march commemorating the 1969 Stonewall uprising that launched the modern LGBTQ rights movement. I certainly was defiant and caused a number of eyebrows to go up, said Clement, now a resident of the Los Angeles LGBT Center's Triangle Square, a 104-unit apartment complex in Hollywood for low-income elders his persistent attitude has served him well in his older years, especially when dealing with health issues such as having brain surgery at 89. But I am not going to dwell on them, he said. I am not feeble. I'm still as positive about being gay as I was back then. Defiance also shaped the life of David Epstein, 70, Clement's husband of one year and friend of 12. A student radical in the 1960s, Epstein defied anyone who tried to put him in the box of expected heterosexuality. Epstein, too, pushes back against the negative stereotypes about people his age. It's a choice about how we present ourselves, said Epstein, clear about his own choice. I am not going to be that kind of old person, the one who sits down and lists his aches and pains, he said. Community comes up often in conversations with LGBTQ elders and those who serve them. Karen sculpty Executive Director of San Francisco's Open House, said resilience makes communities. Everything Open House does in managing 104 low-income apartments for LGBTQ residents, and offering wellness, transportation, and community engagement programs grows out of its commitment to supporting LGBTQ and other elders' resilience. We believe that the power of resilience makes communities stronger, better, more powerful, and richer, Sculpting said. Resisting internalized ageism is a hard road to hoe, said Imani Woody, founder of Mary's House in Washington, D.C., and one of Next Avenue's 2019 influencers in aging. Mary's House, a renovated and expanded version of the house Woody grew up in, is the first of what she envisions will become a nationwide network of affordable, independent living communities for LGBTQ elders of color. Woody explains that black people know a thing or two about resilience. People of African descent have endured enslavement, inferior legal standing in the Constitution, lynching, Jim Crow, and systemic racism, Woody said. Each generation has been told, Your ancestors are from Africa, where they were kings and queens, healers and craftspeople you are enough. What we tell ourselves about our own aging matters too. There is a vocabulary of happy aging, said English professor emeritus Frank Galassi, 82. Galassi still teaches, currently a Zoom class for the Los Angeles LGBT Center on LGBTQ History. He said it helps to frame one's aging experience as a journey of seeking more, such as more wisdom, kindness, fellowship, or service to others, rather than simply becoming older. I use those words mentally on a day-to-day basis, he said. Galassi laughs recalling an incident that underscored how even words that should signify honor and respect can be used to demean an older person when coming from a place of ageism and the humor that helps to bat them away. It ain't easy being surrounded by millennials in West Hollywood, said Galassi. I had the experience a few months ago, going up the street by a group of gay white men in their 30s. I heard one of them say, let grandpa go by. So I passed and I said, stay well, my grandchildren. He added, you just got to laugh. John Manuel Andriot has reported on HIV-AIDS as a journalist since 1986. He has been open about his own 2005 HIV diagnosis since coming out publicly about it in a first-person story for the Washington Post. Andriot's most recent book is Stonewall Strong, Gay Men's Heroic Fight for Resilience, Good Health, and a Strong Community a bookend for his award-winning history, Victory Deferred, How AIDS Changed Gay Life in America. And Driot mines his and other gay men's experiences for insights on resilience in conference and university talks and in his Stonewall Strong blog, For Psychology Today. Next, Cindy Merman and Helen McDermott endure in love together. Remaining positive despite isolation and McDermott's dementia isn't always easy. While COVID-19 deprives Lucinda, Cindy, Merman of many activities that keep her spirit alive, one in particular stands out performing music in front of live audiences. That's but one of the challenges the pandemic has imposed on Merman as she cares for her wife, Helen McDermott, who lives with dementia. Merman marvels that the modern Indiana town where she grew up is just 90 miles from South Bend, Indiana, where presidential contender Pete Buttigieg, Served as an openly gay mayor. If I had said then that God made me this way, I would have been stoned to death, said the 81 year old. Although she never came out to family, Merman's decision to move to New York City was met with harsh disapproval, especially from her mother, a fundamentalist Christian. Says Merman, I first saw New York on a senior class trip, and then I wandered into a college that my parents had no idea. What was very radical, Antioch College in Ohio. Merman was the only girl in her high school class to attend college. Her mother viewed Merman as a heathen for uprooting to New York City, and the family disowned her. As my mother said, you just went to New York to have sex. And it turned out that was true. She was right, and love, which she didn't know anything about. Merman was excluded from her mother's will. Merman attempted to conform in other ways. We all tried to fly straight, she says, of the silent generation. I got married, had a child, I got divorced, of course, so I was raising a child alone. Along the way, she earned a Ph.D. This, at a time when coming out as gay was deemed a character disorder that could have gotten her kicked out of school— After graduating, Merman started her own psychiatric practice and buried herself in work. By all appearances, very successful, life took its toll. I was drinking. That's how I did it. That kind of came crashing down in my 30s, she recalls. It was through an Alcoholics Anonymous group for medical professionals that Merman, a clinical psychologist, met Helen McDermott a clinical sociologist, in 1983. A year later, McDermott, who grew up in the Bronx, moved in with Merman. The two bought offices and shared a practice for 25 years. It was very nice, Merman says. We kind of thought that we would do that forever. We didn't plan on this. Helen's memory loss. By 2008, it was clear that Helen, now 88, had dementia. This meant selling their practice. She's a much more brilliant therapist than I ever was, says Merman. She loved being a therapist, so that was very hard for her to have to give it up. While Merman continued seeing a few patients in the couple's home, her primary role shifted to caregiver. Like many others thrust into that role, she was unprepared. I was not raised to be a caregiver. I wasn't taught that you have to take care of yourself, that you have got to get help, she says, adding, I've never been very political. I'm suddenly very political about the aging process and dying in this culture. As with many LGBTQ elders, Merman lacked family to turn to. LGBTQ elders are less likely to have the informal support networks, like children and other family members, that many non-LGBTQ people rely on as they age. Relying instead on friends and family of choice, LGBTQ elders may become isolated as their friends also age or they need to enter long-term care facilities because they lack people to care for them. Discovering SAGE, a New York headquartered advocacy and services organization for LGBTQ elders, was a turning point for Merman. SAGE has given some respite care to Merman, who says its caregiver support group has been especially valuable to her over the past six years. They've been a really good source of support, she said, even though we all have impossible tasks. Somehow, sharing it, you feel a little less alone and you understand each other. Being gay, she continues, we of our generation really don't have any family involved with us, so it's good. We don't have to explain a lot about ourselves. Most importantly, you wouldn't believe that it helps to share such difficult feelings, but it does. You kind of get hope that you can get through it, says Merman. In 2011, something previously unimaginable occurred. The couple married. We were the 23rd couple in line on that first day, that Sunday, Merman recalls, There was a lottery. There were like 250 LGBTQ couples that got married that day. There were a few haters out, and there were people with rainbow umbrellas, and they clapped. It was a very moving day. Another major life event took place a few years ago when the couple downsized due to mounting medical expenses and loss of income. While there have been many upsides to their move, a greater sense of community among neighbors, a more manageable space, a well-staffed building, and a quieter neighborhood, Merman recognizes that moving is one of the worst things you can do to someone with memory loss, so McDermott's gotten much more fragile since then. As for work, giving up their practice was less difficult for Merman than McDermott. I liked being a therapist, but much deeper in me is being a musician. When I turned 60, I thought, maybe you'd better start doing something you really want to do for yourself. For her, that meant picking up the oboe, the instrument she had played in high school. She had been performing in the UN Symphony Orchestra, in another at Main School of Music at the New School, plus in an opera and a quintet. It takes your mind into something else. It's really just beautiful and lovely, Merman said. Just as being a therapist was core to McDermott's identity and the main way she expressed herself, music has become that for Merman. For three months of the pandemic, Merman says she barely left home at all. We were right at the epicenter and I was frightened that I might infect McDermott, she says. I was not really depressed, but I felt very withdrawn. I just felt like I was dying inside. McDermott, by contrast, likes that Merman rarely goes out. She gets nervous if I just go out for the mail. She doesn't want me out of her sight ever, but I'm going a little crazy, Merman says explaining the pandemic to her wife has been difficult too although they read the newspaper together every day sometimes she asks why we wear a mask isolation is an ongoing hurdle especially for merman online support group meetings though not the same remain an important source of connection but no one has been in the couple's apartment since march and merman's not gone into anyone else's either Hardest of all, performing music online doesn't cut it for her. I am an oboist and I'm dying. I feel like I'll probably never get to play in an orchestra again. That makes me the happiest on earth to sit in the orchestra and play my oboe, said Merman. Regular trips to a nearby park have stopped as it's grown colder. Conversations with others in the park were life-affirming for McDermott, These days, Merman says she goes back and forth between making McDermott do stuff and letting her be when she just doesn't want to get dressed or sleeps late. They will resume visits to the park in the spring. Regaining some sense of community with neighbors in the couple's 250-unit building has been challenging, too. Everyone kind of went into their own little bubble, Merman says, of the pandemic's hit. Morning walks have helped her persevere. I decided I would go for a walk in the morning. It would be safe if I went around seven, she says. Mermin came to realize that two other women in the building were also feeling alone. Now they take turns joining her. That really helps a lot, just to have a real person to walk with and talk with you, said Mermin. As a bonus, one of the women likes to cook and frequently knocks on the couple's door bearing soup. Recently, Merman signed up for Medicaid, which will pay for a home health aide, Although she's nervous about having someone come in, she says, I will get a little respite, but then there's no place really to go. Merman says she has keys to apartment of a friend, and they've left the city due to COVID. I might just go there and nap for a while. Merman is eager to share these caregiving lessons that may help others. She has five of them. First, care for yourself. It helps when I do a little bit more for myself. 2. Seek help. Try to get as much help as you can get. I realized I was raised that there's something shameful if you need help. Get past that. The person you're caring for may resist, but don't let them dictate. Reach out to others. However you can connect with someone, try to. They're needy, too. You have to be less shy. Know that they also need the companionship. Just try to foster some new connections, and be gentle with yourself. Don't hate yourself. I was going to read all of the classics, and I was going to really, really build up my stamina playing the elbow, and I haven't done any of that. And finally, ask this question. What did I do for my soul today? Too often, we don't do anything. Author Bruce Johansson, Ph.D., is a Minneapolis-based freelance writer whose articles have appeared in the Washington Post, Health Progress, and several local publications in the Twin Cities and D.C. areas. He is the winner of the 2019 Salon J. Buck Award for Best Article in Minnesota History, Out of Silence, Free, Minnesota's First Gay Rights Organization. And our third article, Christina DaCosta provides a means for LGBTQ elders to connect. The innovative SAGE Connect gives hundreds a friendly weekly call in the pandemic. When her workplace shut down its operations in March due to the pandemic, Christina DaCosta knew she had to do something to help the many LGBTQ older people who would be exceedingly isolated as a result. Decosta works as the Senior Director of Communications at SAGE, the world's largest and oldest organization dedicated to improving the lives of LGBTQ older people. Its main branch is in New York City, where Decosta is, but SAGE has 30 other affiliates around the country that offer services and programs LGBTQ older people rely on for support and connection. We were thinking, how can we help as quickly as possible, DaCosta reflects. What she came up with was Sage Connect, a telephonic program that LGBTQ elders and volunteers can sign up for to make or receive a friendly check-in call at least once a week for at least six weeks. Christina da Costa says SAGE was actually founded in 1978 by gerontology students who were queer themselves and saw the need in their community to connect with older LGBTQ people. From the very beginning, that sense of isolation and connecting people together was the core focus of SAGE. One of our main programs that's still in existence is called Friendly Visitor Program. It's sort of like Sage Connect, except it's in person. We train people to go into people's homes and be their visitor. It could be delivering them a meal, just hanging out, playing cards, or talking. LGBTQ older people are twice as likely to be single and live alone, they're four times less likely to have children, and, due to a lifetime of discrimination, are less likely to have access to caregiving support than their heterosexual peers might have, and so that just compounds the factor of loneliness and isolation for this population." Older people in general, but especially LGBTQ older people, were hit so much harder in the pandemic than the rest of the population, both in terms of susceptibility and mortality rates, that it became life or death for them to stay physically distanced from people. These programs, like Sage Connect and other telephonic and virtual programs across the country, are essential for people to connect. The telephone aspect makes it really easy for people to use who aren't in Wi-Fi zones and may have problems or may not even have laptops. Next Avenue asks, Sage Connect users receive 30-minute phone calls for six weeks with a volunteer. What are people encouraged to talk about? If you become a Sage Connect caller, we have trainings and actually do a background check. The topics people talk about vary, really. Some of them are just life experience and offering life advice both ways. We've had folks who talk about book recommendations, Netflix, binging watching, and stories about growing up in New York or New Jersey, Alabama, Georgia, anywhere you can imagine these folks are connecting. One of the best things about Sage Connect is it's just a conversation. It can be as heavy as people want to make it, and it can be lighthearted as well. When it gets heavy, as sometimes these conversations can be, especially during the height of the pandemic, we offer tools to our callers to come check back in with us. We have a staff member who can assist if there's a need for help. Next Avenue asks, I bet that a benefit of SAGE Connect is building intergenerational connections across the nation among LGBTQ people. What can you say to that? Before working there, I had never heard of SAGE. There are lots of folks in the community that have never heard of SAGE either. And learning about SAGE was one of those aha moments like, oh wow, LGBTQ older people. Yes, of course, they do exist. It's not only the shared history and knowledge, it's that they are phenomenal human beings across the board. And it's not only the stories of history, it's the stories that they're making now that are just awe-inspiring. The fact that people in this community lived through the AIDS crisis and are dealing with another pandemic and are still fighting and they're resilient. Our tagline is, we refuse to be invisible. And they refuse to be invisible. They offer so much joy and fierceness that I want the younger generations to see and to be inspired by. And also say, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Because if you're lucky, you're going to get old. It's such a privilege just to age. Next question. If you could change one thing about aging in America, what would it be? I would like the standard aging narrative to change so that LGBTQ, Black, and Brown elders, and non-native English speakers, amongst other aging communities, get the care and visibility they deserve to age with dignity and respect. The pandemic has widened the chasm in the disparities faced by those who are not white and cisgender. Next question, how has the COVID-19 pandemic changed Your Perspective on Aging Isolation is a massive issue in aging, especially for LGBTQ elders who don't have children or biological family to help. Yet, the resiliency of elders and their ability to adapt has been an inspiration. I began this program with the words resilience, crisis competence, and defiance. These are the lessons that Cindy Merman, Robert Mary Clement, Frank Galassi, Helen McDermott, Harold Coonan, and Imani Wood can model for all of us, whether in the face of illness, discrimination, this COVID pandemic, or any other challenge. Thanks for listening, and until next week, I'm Kathy Vanscoik.